First Timothy 1, I want you to look again. Verse 13 of this text, you'll notice the Apostle Paul refers back to his former life as an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, who was, I was, before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So here is Paul. He's reminding Timothy that one time he was a blasphemer before God. He was an opponent of the Lord Jesus Christ, a persecutor. But what's verse 13 say? I obtained mercy. God had mercy on Saul. And what happened because of that great mercy? Verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy. That in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. In other words, Paul testifies to that which we can all, if you're a believer here today, we can all testify that by God's mercy, he says, I've been, become a trophy, a record, a living memorial of God's a saving grace. From damaged goods to a shiny crown. That's what God has done by His mercy. This is also what Paul testifies to in Ephesians when he says, but God who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He hath quickened us, hath raised us, hath made us, hath saved us. Why? That in the ages to come, He might show. He might display the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us by Jesus Christ. And why by grace? Why mercy? Years ago, for Louise's 50th birthday, I went to David Yerman to buy her a ring with a specific jewel in it. And I saw what I thought was the right one, and it wasn't until he, he took it out, he placed it under this bright light, and then he laid it upon a black background of cloth. Then I could really see all the brilliance, all the facets of, of beauty and expert cutting and what was once a mere rock in the earth. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in this text. He is placing the glory of God's grace and mercy the glory of transformation against the blackness of Paul's past, shining the light of truth upon it and saying, this is what I can do. This is what I have done. This is what I am doing. And yes, this is what I'm going to do in the ages to come. That is for all of eternity, because this God says is what I want to do. Look at verse 15. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. God saves people, Paul said, according to the good pleasure of His will. God loves to make trophies of His grace. And sometimes, the darker the background, the shinier the trophy. Father, please help us today. We... We thank you, Lord, for already blessing our hearts, reminding us that you loved us before we've, we've ever loved you, reminding us that it's the cross that all of us ran to and should run to. 
reminding us of your mercy and your grace. And now, Father, these, these powerful truths in your word are for us. For every person in this room, may we hear them. And for many, may they heed them. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many, many years ago, when I was still in Bible college, I was asked to preach in an inner city church in St. Louis, Missouri. I was just 21 years of age at the time, and thankfully the people there were very kind. They were very patient with this young newbie in the pulpit. 1,500 people or so were there, and I was a little nervous, and I preached that morning from 2 Kings 11.10. It says, To the captains over the hundreds did the priests give King David's spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. Those spears and those shields were trophies of David's victories over his enemies through the years. And so Solomon had taken them to adorn the walls of the temple like hunters would do with antlers and like anglers would do with a marlin. So we read the text to the people and I said, the spears that were on the walls are offensive and the shields are defensive. And of course, we have trophies like that. The Golden Glove Award in Major League Baseball is for superior fielding. That is a a defensive trophy. The Cy Young Award is for pitching. That's an offensive trophy. These are trophies like David's shields and spears that are set on display. And so I preached on that subject. I preached on trophies. and, And after the service, I had Sunday dinner with the family I was staying with. And when he prayed for the food and his blessing, he said, the father of the home said this, Lord, strengthen Our guest, Jim Blaylock, who is a trophy in the making. Two things I learned from his prayer. I took from it. A, he was right. I was young. I was green. I yelled at those people, 1,500 people. Who am I? And I needed a lot of work. And B, 45 years later, he's still right. Every believer is a trophy in the making. The good news, of course, is that Jesus, who saves, is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. 1 Corinthians 1.8, Christ shall also confirm you until the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That simply means that when God starts to make a trophy and a testimony, He's going to finish it. Before I walked into the room this morning, I I stepped into Brother Kevin's office and grabbed the only trophy that I saw in all of our offices, and it was this little plaque. You have trophies at home. Nate, you still have trophies from your kicking? He was a punter at Middle Tennessee and at King's Academy. You still have trophies? All right, that's that's shameful. You shouldn't make... (laughs) You shouldn't make your wife dust your trophies from your victories of your past. I'm kidding. And by way of illustration, I just want you to notice how often that God alludes to something akin to what I have in my hand. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, making manifest the Savior and the Savior of His knowledge by us in every place, for we are unto God a sweet-smelling savor of Christ. Jude says that God will present us, quote, faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. 
All believers are trophies in the making. That brings me this morning to three things I want us to consider about the purpose of trophies, if that's what we are. And the first one you'll notice, number one, is that trophies are a representation. Now follow this very carefully. In other words, it's not the trophy itself that matters the most. Look at verse 12 of our text. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor. And injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, wait a minute. Later on, you're going to read that Paul is a prisoner in Rome. And he writes as an indicted criminal that he is a troublemaker and, quote, the least of all the saints. He says that he is an ambassador in bonds. He's got bonds. He's held in prison. So that this man, you understand this, was a reproach to all of the elite in the city of Rome. The last line of verse 15, you see what it says? Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom, Paul says, I am chief. I'm the absolute worst. Now, can I ask you a question? How is that a trophy? A trophy? I'll remind you that Paul testifies that his speech was contemptible. That his physical presence, nothing to look at. It was, the word he uses is weak. That his body was covered in scars. Would you want to receive a trophy that was dinged and dusty and despised? A trophy that's literally hard to even look at. You know, when the Super Bowl trophy is presented next February, that thing is going to be highly polished. The person who will be carrying it will wear white cotton gloves. No kidding. And you watch. February the 11th, 2024 at the Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, the 58th Vince Lombardi Trophy will be handed to the Miami Dolphins (laughs) in white gloves, and we will all live happily ever after. But Pastor, why why does Paul call himself the chief of sinners? And why does he highlight his physical weakness, his speech impediment, and his evil, wicked past? And still say he's God's workmanship. Still say in our text that he's showing forth the exceeding riches of God's goodness and grace and kindness. How does that that glorify the trophy? Well, folks, that's the point. It doesn't glorify the trophy. This little plaque isn't that impressive. I can tell it's fake marble. This little branch right here is plastic. It's painted gold. It's plastic. Even the golf ball that's in the middle of it, we call that a top rock. It's not even a good golf ball. By the way, it has a number one. I don't know if you see that. See this trophy? It has a number one because Brother Kevin, he got a hole-in-one at Jupiter Dunes. It says Jupiter Dunes 6820. Now, in fairness to Brother Kevin, he, he didn't ask for this trophy. It was, after all, a par three course, and it was a 60-yard shot. <clears throat> he's in junior church. He has no idea. I'm throwing him under the bus. <laughs> oh, but he's got a hole in one. He didn't ask for it. His cousin did, who played with him that day. And you can be sure of this, par three course or not, Those boys hooped 
and hollered when that ball went in the hole for an ace, which means the achievement was far more glorious than the appearance of this trophy. And the euphoria and no doubt the fun, the friendship, the surprise, and the, the reality of that moment that it's so rare to happen is infinitely more valuable than this little plaque. The point is, a trophy is a representation. You go home today and you look in the mirror. What you see in the mirror, you don't have to fret about that or dis- despair or even obsess over that. That physical appearance, that's not the miracle. What you've done and couldn't do or may do in the, in the gym, that's not the miracle at all. That's not the place of glory. I'll never forget years ago, I was walking into our Publix and, and coming out, there was, a, there was a paraplegic. And I mean clearly paralyzed from the neck all the way down. And he was in one of those, those special chairs and as I walked in, he, he said, How you doing? And I said, I'm good. How are you? And he said, life is grand. And that made my heart glad. And so, smiling, I walked through the aisles. And a few minutes later, in one of the aisles, I noticed this big, strong, athletic teenager whining to his mom. Just constantly. How much longer, mom? Come on. Whining. Just whining. In his big muscle shirt. And I just thought to myself, dude, I've got this guy in a wheelchair I want you to meet. He's a trophy. You're a dud with all those greasy muscles. (laughs) It's not the trophy that's glorious, but it is what that trophy represents. Some time ago, I got to see an actual medal from the 1980 Miracle on Ice Olympics in Lake Placid. And you know, when I saw that thing, it wasn't that impressive. The ribbon had been stained and cut a little. It looked old and and dated. It sold for $310,000. And when I looked at it, I didn't just see this old relic. I saw something else. In fact, I felt something else. Because what it represented was glory. A miraculous moment in sports history. But wait a minute. Because that leads us to the second thing in the text. Number one, a trophy is a representation. Number two, you'll notice a trophy is a recognition. And what exactly, you're a trophy. What exactly does Paul say that it actually recognizes? Verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth. There it is. What are you going to show forth? What is it in you, Paul, that the mercy of God shows forth? Here it is. All long-suffering. What is it recognizing? All long-suffering. And then he goes back to the trophy motif. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. In other words, a trophy is a recognition of something glorious. And in this case, it is the long-suffering Think about all the times that Paul threw somebody in jail. God was merciful. Think about all the times that God could have smitten you when you were lost. God was long-suffering. Every trophy has behind its presence a story. 
And typically, the greater the trophy, the greater the story of sacrifice and sweat and effort and tears, excitement, victory, cheers, crowds, blood and toil. I know when I looked at that Olympic medal from the miracle on ice, I could hear in my mind the words, do you believe in miracles? Yes. The World Cup is the most recognized trophy on the planet. It's a little over six kilograms of solid gold. And since it started in 1930, there have only been two of them. The first one was, was lost, stolen in Brazil, never found, no doubt melted. Every four years it goes on a world tour. And it goes to the poorest, most obscure kids in the world just so they can get a glimpse of it. When it travels to these little villages and these big cities, if you've ever noticed it on television, there are massive crowds. They don't get to touch it. They don't get to hold it. They just get to see it from a great, great distance. And that's because in 1930, Uruguay held it. In 1954, West Germany. In 1966, it was England. In 1986, Argentina with the great Maradona. 2002, Brazil, Ronaldo. 2010, Spain with Sergio Ramos. And that trophy for that country represents four years, but really you think about the players, an entire lifetime of struggling and hours of practice and coaching and effort and dedication. And then finally, glory. It becomes for them a recognition So when Paul says in verse 16 that God is making trophies of His people, a pattern that people can see, he makes this gloriously clear that what the trophy recognizes is the result of His long-suffering, His mercy, His grace. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, Mine own son in the faith. Notice what he says. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace? Yes. Mercy? Yes. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. By the way, trophy, you talk about sweat and blood and tears and sacrifice. When Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden, and when He wept over the city, when He gave Himself sacrificially at Calvary, and when He rose from the grave. You understand that wasn't just a a lifetime of preparation. He was the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And the trophies of all that grace, that mercy and long-suffering, are the vessels of mercy sitting in this room today. Jacob Koshy was an extremely ambitious man. Through drugs and gambling, he amassed this enormous fortune. But the only thing is, he was a notorious drug lord. He was a drug lord of an international smuggling network. And about halfway through that entire enterprise, he realized how empty his heart was. Guilt, fear frustration filled his soul one day he was arrested in Singapore and found himself in prison awaiting trial and in 1980 he was found guilty in his entire life you know how Singapore is was effectively over while in that Singapore prison he was able to continue his smoking habit as so many other prisoners have done by rolling his cigarettes with the pages of a Gideon New Testament 
He hated Christians and he enjoyed stealing their Bibles whenever he could. One night he's rolling himself a cigarette and he noticed it was the last page of that little book. He sort of angrily rolled it up and he began to smoke it and then he fell asleep. When he awoke, he noticed his cigarette had burned out so that all that was left and remained was just a little scrap of charred paper. He unfolded it and he noticed what was written. He could read just six words. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Jacob Koshy was intrigued. He thought, I don't know what that means. So he asked for another Bible and he got one and began to read all of it, the entire book of Acts and then the Gospels. And when he did, he began to pray. God, open my eyes. What does this mean? He suddenly realized that if someone like Saul, if someone like that could get saved, then, then surely he himself could get saved. And there in his cell, he knelt and he asked Christ to save him. He began to cry. He said, I wept and I couldn't stop weeping of joy. In the days and the months ahead, he started winning other inmates to Christ. And as soon as he was released, he joined a local church. He began to grow, and today he's a missionary pastor. That is a trophy that shows forth the long-suffering of God. Every time he rolled a page of the Word of God to burn it and to mock it, God was long-suffering. But I want to say this. It is no different than what God did in saving you. It cost God just as much to save your soul as it did Saul of Tarsus or that thief on the cross. When I was 12 and I was first saved, we used to sing this hymn in our church and I didn't understand it. Come ye sinners poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And I remember thinking, you know, poor and needy, weak and wounded. Is that really me at 12 years of age? Then one night, I was at men's Bible study that I asked if I could go there, and, and one of the laymen was reading Revelation, and he explained in Revelation why the Bible says, and all liars, and all liars shall have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Liars? Look at verse 9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners. Now, I want you to think about that word sinners. Sinners. For unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars. For perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Hey, I'm not a kidnapper. It's a man-stealer. I'm not a murderer or a man-slayer. But I'm the sinner in verse 9. And I'm the liar in verse 10. And left to my own devices, but by the grace of God, I would be all of those. And so are you. When he explained all liars in Revelation, I remember that night, I went to my house and with tears running down my face on my pillow, I sang in my head with understanding that song. 
All of the verses. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. You're looking at a sinner saved by grace. A trophy, a trophy is a trophy of recognition. This is why Paul breaks into praise. You understand that in this text, there's a moment that's unique in all the Bible, all the New Testament. He's giving this doctrine of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then he just stops and breaks into song. He breaks into praise. Verse 17 says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he goes back to teaching. Folks, you talk about spontaneous praise, and I'll tell you why. It's because verse 17 goes back to the end of verse 13 where he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Paul says, I was deceived. I was blind. I was ignorant and without faith. And you know something? When you're deceived and you think the deceit is the truth, you're really, really in bad shape. And that was all of us. I was telling Nanny the other day about one of my favorite teenagers I heard from. Way back in my first youth director days, Gary McConnell, 1980. I wasn't much older in those days than the youth group and the teenagers themselves. And Gary, this kid was such a prankster. He was such a class clown. He and I would sometimes get into trouble. More than once, after some youth activity, I'd be driving him home. And he'd say, Brother Jim, let's be cops. I knew what he meant. So on some dark Michigan road, I'd pull into the meeting in the grass. I'd turn the lights off. And if some car went past us that was clearly speeding, I'd hit the gas, you know, spin my tire, turn on my headlights and get right up behind him. And sure enough, so many times the poor car would pull over thinking I'm a cop. And we would just wave and go past him. Say, Pastor, you, you, you probably made people cry. I know. <laughs> but I also made them happy and relieved <laughs> 10 seconds later. <laughs> anyway, after our second year in Michigan, Louise and I moved back to Chicago to begin seminary. And I really missed the youth group. I missed Gary. One of my jobs in Chicago, you've heard me tell many times, was with Rick's Cleaning Service. And we cleaned all these various buildings. And one of them was the Alcoa Corporate Headquarters. All of these fancy executive offices for Alcoa Aluminum. And one night, I'm cleaning this office about 2 or 3 in the morning, and I'm cleaning one of the Big Shot's desks, and I notice that he had thrown away some of his corporate letterhead. Fancy envelopes. Fancy letterhead with, like, silver Alcoa, almost aluminum writing at the top. For whatever reason, Gary had this running joke in our youth group, something he called CPP, clearly or cleverly packaged products. And it's dumb. Whenever we would go to McDonald's or Wendy's or a gas station, if he saw some cool packaging, he would bring it back to the van and he'd say, look at this, this is cleverly packaged products. And he loved those Big Mac boxes. They had just come out. He thought that was the greatest thing and he'd geek out over that stuff. We were used to it. We'd roll our eyes, thought he was nuts. He would save some of it, put it in his school locker, cleverly packaged. He just thought it was the greatest thing. We thought it was goofy. So when I noticed this impressive Alcoa executive letterhead, I decided to prank Gary by writing a letter from the COO of Alcoa Aluminum. This man had a typewriter in his office. There were no word processors back then. It's 1981, and so I typed, Dear Mr. McConnell, it has come to my attention that you appreciate 
commercial packaging. And that you came up with the phrase, cleverly packaged products. Mr. McConnell, this is what we do best. We would love to have you on our team. We want to invite you to come and be our youngest product designer, blah, blah, blah. And I forged it, and I folded it, and I mailed it off. And I wished that I could have been there to watch as he opened it. I didn't even have his home address, so I mailed it to the Christian school where I had worked and he, he was attending. There was no email, no texting in those days, so I just wondered, you know, for days if he'd ever received it. A couple weeks later, I'm back in the offices, two in the morning, whatever, and I'm cleaning that same office. I notice on that Big Shot's desk there is a, a written, handwritten letter from Gary. <laughs> Dear Mr. So-and-so, you cannot imagine how happy and excited I am to receive your letter. I appreciate the invitation to be a part of your team. I graduate high school this year. I'm excited, blah, 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 blah. The whole time I've been like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, what a tangled web we weave. <laughs> and on top of that letter was a handwritten note by that executive with three big question marks and three big exclamation points. Like, what is this? Who wrote this? I didn't write this letter to him. I showed it to the owner of our cleaning company. He said, he said, dude, you pranked two people with one letter. That was a good job. <laughs> I said, no, no, I got to fix this. He said, just toss it in the trash. These guys, these executives will never remember it. And I thought, yeah, but Gary will. Gary and three other teens were slotted to stay with my wife and I in about four weeks during spring break. And they came, and I was looking forward to seeing Gary, and I pulled him aside, and I said, Gary, did you get a letter from... Alcoa Aluminum, <laughs> and he just looked at me. <laughs> he was still holding on. He said, that's why I haven't heard from them. <laughs> and we talked about it, and I apologized, went through the whole thing. He had told his dad, he told his mom. I, uh, <laughs> Later that night, we were talking, and he said, you know, Brother Jim, he said the worst part, the worst thing was all this time thinking it was true, but wondering if it wasn't that I had been deceived. And he said, there's nothing worse than being in the dark and not knowing you're in the dark. It's true, right? Do you know why Paul bursts into that praise in verse 17? Because he's pointing back to verse 13 when he was living in the dark and didn't know he was in the dark. I heard a famous atheist about four days ago say, say, the reason I read and I read this and read that and don't read the Bible is because I don't ever want to be in the dark. I want to be enlightened. I thought, that man is in the dark and has no idea how dark it is. Completely in the dark. And you know, Bubba, that was all of us. That was all of us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Satan's not going to do what I did for Gary. He's not going to come by and say, Hey, by the way, I was deceiving you. He's going to let you stay in the darkness, never knowing that you're in the darkness. And a trophy is a recognition. If you're a child of God here this morning and you want to defeat pride in your life and don't you want to defeat pride in your life, then recognize always that as Colossians 1.13 says, giving thanks unto the Father who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. God did that. Not you. 
Trophies are a representation. They are a recognition. Finally, number three. Trophies are also a recollection. They're a reminder. That's why schools have trophy cases and banners in the gym. The problem, obviously, is that the memories fade and the trophies down here tend to break and and age. But notice the language in Scripture. It is always the language of God. The last words of verse 16, what? Life everlasting. The last words of verse 17, forever and ever. Amen. The last words of this entire epistle say that we have laid hold of what? Eternal life. It is a reminder, beloved, that of what we noted in our introduction, that what God begins here, He finishes in eternity. That He which hath begun a good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And to every believer in this room, you wonder how Paul did what he did? The sufferings, the persecution, the stonings, the beatings. It's the same way we will finish if we're going to finish well. He looked back and he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. There was no pride. Look how many churches I started. Look how many nations I've reached. It was only a recognition that God is working, that God saved me, and God will finish what he's doing. And if you're here today and you're a believer, walk out of those doors full of gratitude. Don't wait till Thanksgiving Day. Do it now. Full of gratitude that you are saved by the grace of God. And then you go out there and show forth as a trophy. You show forth the long-suffering and the mercy and the saving grace of God yourself. And if you're here today and you've never been saved, you're clinging on to religion, your good works, your sincerity, whatever. When you're a sinner, when you're a liar, the Bible says, look who the liars are all coupled with. And all liars shall have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. If you're here today and you're a sinner, run to the cross. Today, come to Jesus. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for a moment. I wonder who might say this morning, Pastor Blaylock, I'm here today and I'm a believer, I'm a Christian by the grace of God. I'm saved today, but I can testify with Paul that it's by his long-suffering, by his mercy, that his grace, that he saved me. And as a Christian, I needed this message. I needed this reminder. God has spoken to my heart about something. Who would say that with heads bowed, eyes closed, raise your hands through the building, and I raise mine and praise the Lord. If you raise your hand and said you're a Christian and God spoke to your heart again, I would say to you, Live every moment of every day understanding the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God is why you're even here today. Pastor Blalock, I'm here today and I'm not sure. If I were to die today, I really don't know for certain that I'd be in heaven. I'm a liar. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let, let God be true and every man a liar. We're all liars. We're in the company of these folk. We're all sinners, verse 9. Pastor, that's me. I'm a sinner. I know it, but I, I, I need salvation from sin. I'm not going to come and embarrass you or call you out. I won't, but I will pray for you. And furthermore, more importantly, God sees your heart. 
with that uplifted hand as well. Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I want to be sure. Would you pray for me with heads bowed? Who would say that? Would you lift your hand high enough till we see it? Yes, amen. Who will join these? Raise them up. Pray for me, Pastor. I'm not sure. God bless you. I'm not sure today that I'm saved, but I want to be. Anyone else? We're going to pray in a moment and have a time of invitation. If, if the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, Christian, about something from the today's text, obey his voice. It may be that you should kneel here at the altar. Pray for someone you love. Pray for your walk. Pray for your witness. Pray for your heart of gratitude or lack thereof. It may be that you're not saved. I don't care if you grew up in this church. Being saved is, is something. You're born again as a child of God. You're not born a, a Christian. You have to make that decision to trust in Jesus. God has no grandchildren. Only children. Maybe it's joining the church or baptism. If it's something like that, Brother Andy's here at the, at the front. He will speak with you as well. Father, bless the invitation. And again, Lord, thank you. That Saul is hardly different from all of us. That all of us, Father, needed your mercy and your grace and your long suffering. And I pray, God, that recognizing that, we will cry out as the saints do in Revelation in eternity, worthy is the Lamb. You are worthy. You're worthy of all of us. All of our heart, mind, and soul. For these who have asked a prayer, draw them to you, Lord. For those watching by live stream and in this room who are not saved, please use the rest of this service, Lord, to draw them to Christ, to true forgiveness and salvation. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.